So here's a question as we lead into Christmas. How can we be certain that what happened on that holy night was not some big hoax? How do we know that it wasn't just fake news? We hear a lot of that today, right? And we've heard a lot of that, that fake news in the media and, and all over the world of, uh, over the last course of the last five years or so. We keep hearing a lot about fake news stories. And there's, you know, bogus reporting that's going on all around us, and, and things are spreading on, on Twitter and, and uh, on Facebook, and, and it's really getting hard to tell what is true and what is not. I, I mean, I remember fake news when I was growing up was the tabloids that you saw in the supermarket. And you, you'd go in, and you would see the, those tabloids, and you would walk through, and you would read it, Jesus spotted in. You know, Mary found on side of building or in a grilled cheese sandwich. Um, what, what, uh, oh, uh, Tupac saw in Casino. Uh, one of the best ones that I saw, um, Michigan beats Ohio State. <laughs> yeah, um, fake news. Um, I, I remember one, though. It, it, it was, I don't know, it was probably eight years ago or so, uh, and it was one of the first fake news stories that I had seen on, on Facebook. And, and so a member of the congregation that, that I was pastoring at the time, uh, they sent me this link and they said, Travis, you need to go check this out because they have found the skeleton and the remains uh, of um, Goliath. Okay, let's go check this out. And, and there was this huge body, and it was, there was a, 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 a person laying next to this skeleton, and there was no head, so obviously it had to be Goliath. Well, as you read through it, and then you, you fact-checked it, you found out that it was obviously fake. And I had to tell her, and she had posted on her uh, Facebook, and so it had kind of spread like wildfire that, oh my goodness, they have found the remains of Goliath. And it's like... Okay, we have to go back, and we've got to go through that. Well, um, back in 2016, Oxford Dictionary puts out a word of the year. And in 2016, they had the word post-truth. Now, there's been a lot of words that have been used, but the word of 2016 was post-truth. And here's how they define it. Relating to or denoting circumstances in which objective facts are less influential in shaping public opinion than appeals to emotion and personal belief. In other words, truth takes a backseat to emotion. Now, we see that in a lot of areas, okay? That relativism is more relevant than reality. And we see that. Here's the thing. We even see it in the church, where, where people want to focus so much on, on just being friends with everyone. And, and we don't want to offend anyone that we take a lot of the truth away. And so what I want us to do is I want us to look at facts, not just our feelings. Because what happened was not a fable in the stable. And so we're going to jump in to, uh, we're, we're going to be looking at, at John chapter 1 verse 14. And as we get to John chapter 1, verse 14, I want us to first start at Luke chapter 1, verses 1 through 5. And in Luke chapter 1, 1 through 5, when we read the Gospels, how do we know, <clears throat> excuse me, how do we know that it was, um, it was not a fable? How do we know that it was actually fact? Well, let's read what Luke has to say. Now, Luke 
was a doctor, okay? And, and so he really wanted to analyze the facts. When, when he writes his gospel, he writes his gospel in a way that, hey, I'm going to focus in on the facts. I'm going to focus in and be a little bit more, um, you know, upscale in what I'm writing. He was a doctor. That's the way that he focused. Um, you have Matthew, who was definitely a Jew, and so he wrote mostly to a Gentile or a, a Jewish audience. You have John, who he calls himself, um, you know, close to Jesus. He doesn't actually refer to him, himself um, the apostle that Jesus loved. And, and so love goes through the gospel of John, and that's really how John focuses. And then Mark, we have Mark, who I believe was ADD. Okay, he wrote his entire gospel in 16 chapters, and he said, okay, Jesus went here, and then he did this, and then he did this. Now we're over here, and then this happened. And, and so um, I, I want you, as you look forward to next year, 2021, a lot of us are already doing that, we're actually going to walk through the whole book of, of Mark next year, okay? And, and it's going to be really awesome. Uh, Jared and I have been talking about uh, that sermon series, and, and we're just going to see how uh, Jesus uh, just sees things and, and how he reacts in, in uh, the, the book of, of Mark. But let's read the beginning of Luke. Luke chapter 1, verses 1 through 5. He says, Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus. So, Luke is actually writing to one person, okay? And he wants to give a complete account to Theophilus that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. He says, here, we're gonna, I, I'm going to go back and, and we're going um, to fact check things. We're going to talk to eyewitnesses. We're going we're gonna to make sure that things are actually as they seemed, and he writes an orderly account concerning things that you have been taught, he says. And the Christmas narrative from Luke's gospel is completely anchored in history. And Luke wants to make sure that he points certain things out. Okay, a couple of the things that Luke points out, he says, hey, this happened in the time of Caesar Augustus. He says it happened during the time that Caesar Augustus was emperor over Rome. And then he says a hard-to-pronounce name, Quirinius. He was the governor of Syria. Now, when we read this, we get that he's actually giving us facts. He says this actually took place at this specific time in history. And here's the thing. We can go back and we can find out exactly when they ruled and how they ruled, and what they did. And later on, um, we, we read about this guy named Pontius Pilate. Well, for a long time, we actually didn't have anything on Pontius Pilate, but now we have several evidences, uh, a, a, a signet ring that has been found, a, a stone tablet that has Pontius Pilate's name, and when he ruled, we actually have all of that for us in history. And so Luke says, hey, I have eyewitness accounts, and this actually takes place at this specific time. So here's our approach today. As we look at that as our backdrop, we're going to jump forward to John chapter 1 verse 14. 
And we have three points that are related to the coming of Christ at Christmas. So let's start by looking at the reality of Christ's coming. The reality of Christ's coming. So while the Gospels of Luke and Matthew give the details surrounding the birth of, of Jesus, John provides us with some of the backstory or the theology behind the nativity. John chapter 1, verse 14. Simplicity um, in, in just one verse, but how deep it is. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen His glory, glory as the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. So let's focus in on that first part there. The, the Word became flesh. This is the single most unique quality that sets Christianity apart from all other religions. It keeps us completely separate that God became flesh. The miracle of Christmas is that the infinite became an infant. That is the true miracle of all of this. Now, yes, it was a miracle that Mary, who was a virgin, gave birth to a son. Now, let's not jump over that one, but the true miracle... The true miracle here is the fact that the infant or the infinite became an infant. The whole superstructure of Christianity rests on this one basic truth. Jesus is fully God and fully man all at the same time. One theologian described it this way, God must be able to come over to our side without leaving his own side. God came over to our side without leaving his own side. Now, when we think of astronauts, who do we think of? All right, 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 right. <laughs> I know, it's hard to ask questions with these face masks on, I get it. Um, John Glenn, right? Yeah, we think of John Glenn. Who else do we think of? Neil Armstrong. Like, those are the first two that really come to our mind. Buzz Aldrin, probably a another one up there. Tom Hanks, probably another one up there. Yeah, uh, yeah. Um, but there's a lesser known one. His name is James Irwin. He traveled to the moon in 1971. He said this about Christmas. He says, there's something more important than man walking on the moon, and that is God walking on the earth. He went to heaven, and when he came back from, oh my goodness, <laughs> he went to the heavens. He went, to, <laughs> wow, um, he went to the moon. And when he went to the moon, when he came back, he said, I've seen something so great and glorious. He came back and said, I need to tell everyone about Jesus. And that was his focus from then on. Notice the next phrase. So the word became flesh and dwelt among us. To dwell refers to pitching one's tent. More specifically, it means to settle, to stay, to inhabit. One paraphrase puts it like this, Jesus came and moved into our neighborhood. Man, that really breaks it down for us, right? He came in, and he didn't just come to stay for a short time. He came to encamp, to be with us at all times. I, I remember go, growing up, going camping. Um, we'd go to the fair, and we'd camp for the entire week. We'd go uh, to our reservoir, and we would camp. We'd go to other state parks, and we would camp. And, and uh, you know, we had the camper, but it was a smaller camper, and, and they would put up a tent for me outside. Um, it, I don't know really why. My sisters were allowed inside. I wasn't. Um, 
know why, but you know, I know why, but uh, anyways, you don't really have privacy when you camp, do you? Like, if you're inside your tent, yeah, sure, but like, you're right next to someone else, and they're right there, especially if you're only in tents, like, there's no hiding from anyone. You're, you're there, you're seeing everything, and that's what Jesus did. He came and he encamped with us right there, that we're on familiar terms. When we think of what dwelt among us means, we might be tempted to think that Jesus just came to hang out with us. But what John is trying to get across, that there's a specific word that he uses. When he uses this word tent, the Jewish people would have remembered the tent of meeting. It eventually became the tabernacle, and it was a, a, a temporary place for God to dwell with his people. It was a portable worship center where God dwelt and met with his people. It was also where the sacrifices would be made, and God's glory and holiness was on display. If we go back to the Old Testament in Exodus chapter 40, after the tabernacle was completed, God's glory filled it, and it was overflowing. This is what we read. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle, and Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Now this word glory, it's a a little difficult to define, but it means heavy in weight, important, significant, having great reputation and splendor, brightness, majesty, worthiness, honor. That's who God is. And he came to dwell among them. Later on, God instructed King Solomon to build a permanent home. And so King Solomon, David's son, built the temple. And in 1 Kings chapter 6, verse 13, after finishing construction, God says this, And I will dwell among the children of Israel and will not forsake my people Israel. We go to chapter 8, verses 10 through 11, it reads, A cloud filled the house of the Lord so that the priest could not stand to minister because of the cloud. For the glory of, God, of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. And this glory of God is going to fill the temple for approximately 350 years. But because of the future kings that would come, that would start to lead the people astray, because of people's persistent sin and rebellion, God is going to raise up the Babylonians. And because he raises up the Babylonians, not only are they going to be taken into captivity the temple is destroyed. God's glory then departs slowly but re and reluctantly. In Ezekiel chapter 11, verse 23, we read these words. And the glory of the Lord went up from the midst of the city and stood on the mountain that is on the east side of the city. You see, as a result, God is no longer dwelling at this time, at that time, with his people Reluctantly, sadly, he pulled away because of the sin and rebellion. The Israelites had to be led into captivity. Isaiah chapter 64 verse 1 captures the, the plaintive plea of the people as they lament that the glory of God on earth has gone. The last cries of this last centuries. Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down. 
We sang the song that gave a sense of, of longing and expectation. O come, O come, Emmanuel, and ransom captive Israel. In this series, we've been celebrating the link between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. And we've been talking about how it all applies to Christmas, the indwelling of the Spirit. Next week, we're going to talk about salvation and how salvation started and came because of Christmas, of what happened. And I want you to be thinking about this. If you have never given your life over to Jesus Christ, or if there's something that is in your life and, and you need to rededicate and, and you want to be baptized, we're going to have the baptistry full and ready to go next Sunday morning. And we would love, if that is a decision that you need to make, that you can talk to us this coming week, that you will be ready to, to come, and you come as you are. But if that is a decision that you're ready to make, that we're, we're going to have it ready. It's, it's ready every week, but we're going to have it warm. It's not always warm, okay? But we're going to have it warm and ready to go next Sunday morning. So if that's something, a decision that you need and want to make, that you will make it and be prepared next week. So there's been this quietness. For over 400 years, no one has heard from God. The prophets had fell silent. But then the heavens are no longer silent when Harold the angel starts to hark. Wow. Okay, never mind. So, we have the heralding angel in Luke chapter 2, verse 9. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. <laughs> God's back on the scene. Because whenever God speaks, whenever someone came in the presence of, of, of the Lord or an angel of the Lord, there was immediate shock and fear in the, the Jewish person's eyes because it meant one of two things. And this happened with Mary as well. She wondered what type of a greeting was this. Joseph was the same exact way. There was great fear that happened. And that's what we see happening right here. Then the angels announce, not fake news, factual news. And he is, the, the message that is given here in Luke chapter 2, verse 10. And then the angel said to them, fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all people. For, un, for unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. Now, to find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths, not a big deal, okay? We all would wrap our baby in swaddling cloths. What is a big deal is where you're going to find him and what he's going to be laying in. Because how many of you, with your newborn baby, would go, aw, let's put him in a feed trough. That would be perfect. Like, we wouldn't do that, right? No, we want it to be sanitized and clean, and, and we want it to be, like, perfect. Mary had only one thing, a feed trough. And that was going to be their sign, finding a baby laying in a feed trough. And then the whole arsenal of adoring angels breaks through heaven, and they proclaim God's wondrous 
glory. Verse 14, glory to God in the highest and on peace among those whom he is pleased. And I love the words to Silent Night. We're going to sing both of these songs that, that I've just kind of given to you. Uh, but Silent Night, one of my favorite Christmas songs. Silent night, holy night. Shepherds quake at the sight. Glory stream from heaven afar. Heavenly hosts sing alleluia. There had been no word from God. Silence. But on this awesome night, God breaks through. Because his son, the infinite, became an infant. And that is what we have to hold on to. So are you ready for this? In a similar way that God dwelt with his people in the tabernacle, in the temple, he is now dwelling with us. He is living with us. Yes, Jesus was born in a manger. He grew up. He died on the cross. But he tells his disciples, listen, I have to go away. Because someone that is greater is coming that is going to actually live inside of you. It's great for me to be with you, but one that is greater is going to come and is going to be inside of you. Now, not that they are, there's a level here when, when we read that word greater in there. It doesn't mean that, oh, the Holy Spirit is greater than, than Jesus. No, that's not the case. It was the fact that there was an indwelling to come in among us that would be with us, that would always be with us. I mean, that's what we have here. Don't miss this. God's glory was previously tied to a place, but now it was wrapped in a person. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 19 through 20, Paul makes it very clear about the Holy Spirit. He says, Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. We have now become the temple. So we need to make sure that we're keeping it clean. Because the last thing that we want is for there to be another separation. Now God will never leave you. God will never forsake you. But we, as the Israelites, can choose to pull away. And if we continue to pull away, he'll say, okay, I'll give you your free will. I'll give you what you're asking for. And he will allow, allow us to pull away from him. That's the reality of Christmas, which answers the question, what does it mean? Now let's move on to the relevance. The relevance of his coming. Ponder the last part of John chapter 1, verse 14. Full of grace and truth. Now the word full means abounding or complete. Grace refers to a favor done without expectation or return and truth has the idea of factual pure sincere and without error we hear a lot of these words today grace and truth and and, and then how it applies and how we apply it in our own lives is how we have to really dig into this and, and most of the time humans tend to err on the side of grace, don't we? We want to give everybody second, third, fourth, fifth chances. We want to continue to give those opportunities. And, and there, I mean, we, we tend to fall on one of the other side. Because then there's a whole other group that says, well, 
It's all about truth. And we have to drive home the fact. This is the truth. We've got to be careful with that. Because what we find is if we stress grace, we can be too quick to cut someone some slack. But if we fall on the side of truth and we pull the truth trigger too quickly, we can wipe someone out. I mean, grace without truth can lead to sloppy sentimentality, and truth without grace can lead to religious rigidity. You see, with Jesus, we can always count on both grace and truth. That's the best part of who Jesus is, that we have both grace and truth in our lives. He tells the truth about your situation and your sins, and then his grace causes him to stick with you. I love how Max Lucado puts it. Max Lucado writes this. He says, God loves you just the way you are. That's grace, right? God loves you just the way you are. But he loves you too much to let you stay the way that you are. That's truth. He's always going to point out in truth that we need to be working on our change, that we need to be working on our life, that we need to be trying to get better. We should always be trying to get better. But he loves us just the way we are. He wants you to come into his relationship. He wants to come and be with you. He wants you to be a part of his story. We have to allow him to. That's what it really ultimately comes down to. You see, at Christmas, we're reminded that the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. That the manger is filled with the awesomeness of God's grace and glory. But we're also faced with a terrible truth that because of our sin, he had to come and be born in a manger and then ultimately at Easter go to the cross and die for our sins. Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's why Jesus had to come in the first place. Because he is full of grace, you can come to him just the way you are without having to clean up your act first. There are so many people that I come in contact with that will say, Travis, you know, we would, we would give our life to Christ. Well, we, we would come to church, but, well, I need to clean up my act first. I, I need to get better first. <laughs> no, you don't. Because guess what? The pastor doesn't have it all together either. The pastor sins. Your elders sin. Justin sins. Jared sins. Christy sins. Lisa sins. We all sin. We all fall short of the glory of God. And that's why we need Jesus. You don't have to have your life all figured out. You don't have to have it all put together. You come just as you are. At Christmas, we see Jesus as 100% God and 100% man. Jesus became what he had never been before without losing what he had always been. You see, because he is God, he is sovereign. Because he is man, he can be our substitute by taking our place of punishment on the cross. God the Father is just and therefore demands payment for our sins. Because he, is a, because he is God of grace. He shed his blood as a full payment for our sin. The thing is, is that change needs to take place. 
The problem is, is that we don't always know how to make that change. So he came and set an example. And so we read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. We read the Gospels. We read about Jesus' story. We read about his life and how we should constantly be trying to live like him. I was trying to think of a way to connect these things. And in my personal life, excuse me, it's not COVID. I tested negative this week, I promise. Um, excuse me. And probably after you listen to this story, you're going to realize that I'll probably never get COVID or any other disease because my immunity system is so crazy good. Um, so growing up, we had to do things on the farm that most people would just be uh, about. Okay. Um, and, and one of those was every year we would take our, 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 our animals to the county fairs and we would go to different shows um, and, and we, we raised sheep, we raised cattle, and we would go to these different shows. Well, when we would go to these different places, um, the water was different. Now, how many of you, if you've grown up on well water, when you go to the city, go, oh, that's awesome. No, all you taste is chlorine, right? Yeah, exactly. But if you're like my wife who grew up in the city just drinking chlorine, when you go to the farm and the water comes out brown, you're like, oh, I can't drink that. And I'm like, give it here. You know, like there's a difference. Well, the same was true with the animals. So we would go to these different fairs and we came up with all, we would go and we would be there for several days at a time, even a week at a time. And and so we would go to these places and the, the sheep, the cattle, they wouldn't drink because they would go and the water was different from what they had been raised on. And so we tried all different kinds of things. We would take some of the water from home and we would mix it with the water at, at the location. We would take, uh, one of the things that we would do is we would take um, Jello, orange Jello was the best, and we would mix it in the water uh, at home and then they would be used to the orange flavor so they would drink it at the fair. Well, we found out they just wouldn't drink it at all. Um, but one of the things that we noticed was if we set the example for them, then they would start to drink. So I would have to act like one of the sheep or one of the cattle, and I would walk up to the big trough, and I would have to drink out of it. And then they were like, huh, that's pretty cool. I know. Listen, I'm not, it's not just now. I've always been like this, okay? Um, But I would drink out of the water. And then he would come up, and he would start drinking out of the water, and then the next one would come up, and oh, okay, that works. Like, we would try all different kinds of things, and and here's the thing. That's exactly what Jesus did for us. Jesus came and lived the life that we should have lived. He set the example for us. He came and said, hey, this is what you were supposed to do. This is how you should act. And I love, as, as, as uh, Jared and I have been looking and working on um, the series for the whole next year and walking through um, how Jesus handled certain things, I mean, it just shows through and shines through. He says, here is your example. Follow it. But here's the thing. He knew that we still, even though he set the example, that we couldn't follow it completely and that we would still fail And so he still went to the cross for us. Jesus became one of us in order to get a message to us that he alone is the way, the truth, and the life. 
I like what Tim Keller says about Christmas. He says, Christmas is the end of thinking that you are better than someone else because Christmas is telling you that you could never get to heaven on your own. God had to come to you. Reminds me of the little girl who was frightened at night. Lizzie heard the thunder crack, and so immediately her papa ran into the room. And she says, I'm scared, I'm scared, I'm scared. And papa says, it's okay, God is with you. Go back to sleep. And with that, another bolt of lightning hits. I'm scared, I'm scared, I'm scared, God. God is with you. It's okay, Lizzie. And Lizzie looks up and says, I know that God is with me, but I need someone with skin on. She didn't actually do that. I love the story, though. <laughs> you know, we've looked at the reality of Christ's coming and the relevance of his coming. Let's wrap all this up by considering our reaction to his coming. What's our reaction? What's our response? In verse, uh, in John 1, 14, I see three different responses to Jesus that are still very common today. And we actually have to read all of, of John chapter 1 to really get this number one you may not recognize him unfortunately even after Jesus did dwell among us verse 10 reveals that Emmanuel is often ignored John 1 verse 10 says he was in the world and though the world was made through him the world did not recognize him there has always been a great divide in the human race. The majority never recognized Jesus for who he really was. They never came to know him. And the same thing is true today. Many today do not recognize him as their savior. Many today they don't even know that they need a savior. They've never met Jesus. He was in the world and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. Number two, you might reject him. While we're apathetic and ignore the, the Christ of Christmas, others reject him outright. Look at verse 11. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Jesus came to the people who should have known him best. He came to his people, the Jewish people who had all of the prophets that pointed directly to him, but they rejected him outright. They wanted nothing to do with him. It was the Jews who nailed Jesus to the cross. Yeah, it was the Romans who ultimately nailed him to the cross. But it was the Jews that brought him there. It was the Jews that rejected him. And many times today, the same exact thing happens. Number three, we must receive him. We must take an action step we must receive him as our savior 
While it is true that the world did not recognize him and his own people rejected him, there have always been those who do choose to receive him. That's the whole point of John chapter 1, verse 12. And it's one of the most profound verses in the Bible because it explains clearly how someone can personally become a Christian. Yet to all who received him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Three key words here. Receive. It literally means to take or to seize. Have you taken a hold of Jesus? Have you received him? Yet all who received to those who believed in his name. To believe means to engage your total being so that you put your trust completely in Christ. It's not in you. It's not about your own ability. It's all about what Jesus has done for you. He gave the right to become, to become children of God. The moment you receive Christ into your life, God gives you the right to become a member of his family. Believe, receive, become. That's what we need to do. At the heart of the incarnation lies an invitation. And that's where we've come this morning. An invitation to be a part of him. Martin Luther once said, Of what benefit would it be to me if Christ had been born a thousand times and it would be daily sung in my ears in a most lovely manner if I were never to hear that he was born for me and was to be my very own. As our invitation song, as we get ready to lead into communion, we're going to sing another one of the uh, favorite Christmas carols, Christmas songs, the first Noel. Now, we think of that word, Noel, what does it mean? I mean, we see it on Christmas cards all the time, right? We sing it, but my guess is we probably never really understood its background. It's actually a French word, and it simply means Merry Christmas. Our modern English word comes from the Middle English, Noel, which is defined as a shout of joy. When we sing the first Noel, it is a shout of joy. The background of the word means birth. A shout of joy of the birth of Christ. Another root for Noel, also from the French, is the word news. Great news. Good news of great joy. It's up to us to decide whether or not we're going to receive him. To believe in him. And to become one of his children. And if there is a decision that you need to make, if it's that time that you need to commit your life over to Christ... You don't have to wait until next week. But if you're ready to make that decision, you can make it this morning. I'm going to be in the back. I'd love to talk with you. One of the elders will be in the back with me. 
But whatever decision you have to make, I, I encourage you to make it this morning. We're going to take communion. If you haven't had a chance, you can go to the back tables and you can get your communion. And I want you to think about what we've talked about this morning and what Jesus has done for you. He went to the cross for you. The infinite became an infant, but grew up to go to the cross. Jesus says to take and to eat this bread and to do this whenever uh, you gather. He takes the juice and says, this is my blood of the new covenant. Drink this and remember my sacrifice. Let's pray. Ultimate Father, Heavenly Father, Gracious Father, full of truth, we thank you for the gift of your Son. We thank you that you have allowed us to come into your house and to worship you. Father, I, I pray and ask that at this time, we remember that ultimate sacrifice that you made for us. Father, that we remember how much you love us. And as we partake of this communion, that we will just take our sin, we will take our burdens, we will lay them at the foot of your cross. We pray all of this in your son's most wonderful and precious name.